we're going to keep cranking through the Gospel of John this morning. Uh, so we're going to be John 13. We're going to finish up that chapter. So if you've got physical Bibles, you want to turn there, go ahead and do that. Or you want to swipe in your devices. You can also follow along in the screen behind me when we get there. Uh, just kind of get us all on the same page here this morning. So last week, uh, we found Jesus at the Last Supper with his disciples. And he was doing an offensive, shocking thing. He was washing the dirty excrement uh, covered feet of his disciples. And in doing that, he was providing his disciples an example. An example of how they were then called to love and serve those that they interacted with as well. And then at the end of that story, uh, we found Judas leaving that setting, going into the night, going into darkness to do his very dark deed of betraying Jesus. So today we're going to pick up on the heels of that story, John 13, beginning in verse 31, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in Jesus, God will also glorify Jesus in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. You guys pray with me. God, thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather as your local church, uh, to sing about your goodness and your glory, to be reminded of what you have come and done and what you are still doing even now today. I pray, God, um, that in these moments as we are able to look at your word, reflect upon it, let it instruct us that uh, we would get a vision of who you are and what you're doing specific to our context, the context of our church, but also the context of our lives, where we live and work and move and have our being. And so, Jesus, have sway in our hearts in these moments. In your great name I pray. Amen. So, Jesus has shared his last meal with his disciples, and now he's uh, venturing into this time where he's going to be teaching his disciples. And, and in his teaching, he's continually revealing himself to his disciples. He's preparing them for what is to come, his impending death and his departure, because he understands that what is going to come for him is going to throw his disciples for a loop. And so he wants to instruct them. He wants to remind them. 
This is what I have come to do. Things are okay. And even the fact that you will see glory in places where you would not expect to see glory. So what I want to do today is just make a number of observations uh, about uh, these eight verses. Um, so, so let's do that. First thing I want to I want to highlight is the fact that Jesus and his Father are linked in a distinctly glorious way. That, that's what Jesus is doing in these first two verses. He's linking him and his Father. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified. So Jesus is in this period of time that we've talked about for a number of weeks. It's this hour, not a literal hour, but it's a period of time where things are now set in motion. Judas has left the supper. He's going out to betray Jesus, and it's almost as though that was the last domino to fall for all of these events to transpire. And he's saying that in these events, as he's dying, that glory is going to be written on these events. Even as he washes the feet of his disciples, which they would look at that and say, that's not glorious at all. That's messed up. But Jesus is saying, in the washing of his disciples' feet, in my dying on a, cr- on a cross, there will be glory seen and experienced in those events. But then Jesus takes it further as well. He says that as he is glorified, his Father is also glorified. So God is glorified in and through Jesus, as well as Jesus is glorified in and through his father. There's this inseparable link that's being portrayed. There's a connectedness between the father and the son that is vital to what's going on here and vital to all of the Bible. And Jesus has talked about this previously on numerous occasions. So John 5, 19, Jesus said, the son, being himself, can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. In John 10, 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And then, in a number of chapters, he's going to say, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So, understanding this connectedness between the Father and the Son is vitally important for the biblical storyline, but also specifically for what Jesus is doing in these verses as well. And, and when we think about like John 17, as it talks about this idea that Jesus was with his father uh, before the existence of the world, it also helps to fight against portrayals of God that, that have become popular in our day that are false. And I'll just give you a couple of quick portrayals of God. One of them is the idea that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. But this idea that Jesus was with his father prior to the existence of the world, to, of, of the world, pushes this idea that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. It's not as though the God in the Old Testament is just this angry curmudgeon, and then the God of the New Testament is just flowers and grace, but it's the same God unfolding his plan throughout history. Uh, another portrayal of God that is false, that this idea of this connectedness of Jesus uh, and his Father helps to push against, is this idea that uh, when Jesus hangs on the cross, there's been this uh, theological idea that's been put forth that what's happening there is divine child abuse. So God is this abusive Father. 
He puts his son up on the cross, and he is annihilating him there. But that is not at all what's happening, because what we see between Jesus and his father is that they are connected. They are in this together, and we have to see that. And and even this whole idea of uh, divine child abuse, if we look at Jesus' life prior to that, we never get this glimpse of, oh man, God is, he's abusing his child, which if he's abusing him at the cross, typically when there's a, an abuser, there's, there's other ways in which we'll see that happen prior to that, right? But, but we don't see this. We see God and his son, Jesus, connected, linked in very deep, profound, intimate ways. So the connectedness of Jesus and his father is going to prove its importance in the verses that follow. So what I want to do now is I just want to make two quick comments on verse 33, which is kind of a bridge from 31 and 32 to 34 and 35. So two brief comments here. Jesus says in verse 33, Just as I said to the Jews, where I am going you cannot come. So what Jesus is doing here is he's pointing out the fact that he has made this same statement to the Jews. When you hear Jews here, you should think opponents. Of Jesus. So he has made this same comment to the Jews, and he's referring, Jesus is referring to John 8, 21, and it says in, in John 8, 21, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So here, we've got this massive contrast that Jesus is uh, depicting. He's telling his followers in the verses that follow, 34 and 35, to love one another. So those that are close to him, he's saying, love one another. But that's very different from what he said to his opponents. You will die in your sin. So he's kind of uh, presenting this choice for people, at least for us as the readers today. He's saying, die in your sin as you love yourself. That's Jesus' opponents. Or I'll die in your sin so that you can love one another. I will love you by dying in your sin for you. And he kind of presents this choice. Okay, then secondly, this, another comment on verse 33. He, Jesus addresses his disciples as little children. And initially when I read this, I thought, is there any condescension in what Jesus is saying here? Because there's so many examples where his disciples don't really get it? And so is is he just kind of poking them here a little bit? But think about the picture that Jesus just painted regarding himself and his father, okay? So you have father, you have a son, and he's talking about how they share glory. Their glory is seen in one another, and so there's this connectedness. And now Jesus is making this transition, I think intentionally, to make a connection between what was said, father-son, to what he is going to say as he talks to his disciples being his little children. So in the same way father-son connected, he's now saying, me and you, Jesus and his disciples, are connected in similar ways as well. 
And now in verses 34 and 35, I think this is where the moralists in our, in our midst get really excite, excited because they're like, ah, a command. New Testament, there's maybe not as many. We don't feel like there's as many, but a command, a rule by which I can measure myself. Okay, so the second thing here uh, that I want to note um, is just the, the idea that Christians are given, in these two verses, Christians are given an explicit call to love one another. And in this act of loving one another, it reveals our association with Jesus. Okay? As we love one another, it reveals our association with Jesus. And I think then we can say the opposite as well. Right? If we don't love one another, it reveals our association with something or someone else. Now there's a number of things we want to talk about here, but the first thing I want to look at is the question, what is the new commandment? Because Jesus says that he's giving a new commandment. So what is the new commandment that Jesus is giving? Because the Bible has lots of commands, right? If you go back to the Old Testament, commands are foundational to how the Old Testament is written. This is how God interacted with his people. If you love Laws and commands, you should go to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Books 2 through 5 of the Old Testament because they're filled with laws and commands. You will get your fill of them there. In Deuteronomy 11, verses 26 to 28, God speaks through his servant Moses, and he says this. See, I am setting before you, you being all of Israel, today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. So Moses is saying, if you obey God's commands, you are blessed. If you don't, if you stink at following the commands, you will be cursed. So when we hear Jesus talking about the idea of a new command, that shouldn't be that surprising from the standpoint that commands are all over the Bible. So the command that Jesus gives then is, love one another just as I have loved you. Love one another just as I have loved you. So we should ask, what is new about this command? What is new about this command? Now if you have read Old Testament law, uh, you know it well, you might ask the question, well, what about Leviticus 19.18? Because Leviticus 19.18 says, love your neighbor as yourself, which doesn't sound that different than what Jesus is saying in love one another. And this instruction in Leviticus is also part of what's known as the great commandment, which is recorded in Mark 12. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That also is in Deuteronomy 6, but then love your neighbor as yourself. So my point here is that the command to love one another isn't new at all. It's not new at all. It's a close, varia or a close variation had been given to the Israelites over a thousand years ago. And it's been maintained as vital for them. And, and furthermore, Jesus is no dummy, right? Like, he knows what he's doing here. So we have to ask, why is he giving another command? 
So the first 600 plus that were given in the Old Testament didn't work real well. Spoiler alert, the Israelites consistently, pervasively, and blatantly sinned against God. They're all cursed. And their story is our story. We are all cursed as well. So this has been tried before, laying commandments before God's people. And it didn't go well at all. So why is Jesus giving more of what did not work before? Why does Jesus call this old command new? So here's what we know, okay? Jesus has given a command to love one another. He's made this call to action. So he's given a command, and the the command is a call to action to love one another. We also know that this command isn't new. It's an old command that has been given before. We also know that Israel failed God's commands previously. I think Hebrews 8.6 speaks to where Jesus is going with this. Hebrews 8.6 says this, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So it's kind of a confusing verse. So let's break that down a little bit. It's saying that Jesus' ministry that he has come to do is more excellent than the ministry of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, we could also say of the law. So what Jesus is coming to do is more excellent than the law. The new covenant that he is ushering in is better than the old covenant. Jesus' promise that undergirds this new commandment is much better than the promises undergirding the old covenant. That's what it says. It's enacted on better promises. So Jesus' commands are greater, are better than the law because they're enacted on better promises. So Jesus says in verse 34, love one another as I have loved you. I think when we hear that verse, we often hear, as I have loved you, and we can hear this raising of the bar that's just impossible. I'm supposed to love somebody in the way that Jesus did? I can't do that. That's impossible. Yes, it is. It is impossible. But I think what we oftentimes miss in this verse is the promise of the verse. I have loved you. Love one another as I have and still am loving you. Jesus loved his disciples. Based on what? Based on what? Was it their keeping of the law? Not at all. Not at all. Their impressiveness? They're a bunch of podunk fishermen and crooked tax collectors. They're not that impressive. Their allegiance? One of them just walked out the door to go betray him. Another one is about to deny him three times. Jesus loved them. And he loves us because he is love. Not because the disciples or us do anything impressive to merit or earn 
Jesus' love. He loves us because he is love. He loves us because we need him to do that. We have, we have no other hope other than for him to love us. So the command given by Jesus is a command that is rooted in a better promise. The promise of the old covenant, the old way is obey my commands or be cursed. It rested on humanity. The promise of the new covenant, of this new command that Jesus is giving, is on him. He will obey the law. We're called to believe. But he is the promise that undergirds this command. Our ability to love one another, as Jesus instructs here, will fall somewhere between no chance and pathetic. We can't do it. We just can't do it. But Jesus did. Jesus did. Later in this conversation, Jesus is going to tell his disciples in chapter 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The commandment is new because it's based on Jesus. It is now a keepable command, not because we have this strength within our flesh, but because we're trusting in Jesus. And I think maybe something that kind of throws us off whenever we hear commandment in the New Testament, because when I read commandment, I oftentimes think, Old Testament, okay, I've got to keep this, I've got to keep this command or I'm hosed. Like, I've got no chance whatsoever. But when we read command in the Old Testament, we should think, keep it, blessing. Fail to keep it, curse. That's how things were set up. Now, as Jesus ushers in this new way, this new covenant, we should know that we can't keep his commandments perfectly. But he did. Jesus kept the law Perfectly, And so our ability to obey his commandments are rooted in trusting in him, in letting him rule over us, in letting him shape the contours of our hearts so that then as he shapes us, we begin to look like him. And so it's not Kevin is impressive because he's doing this thing. If anything is impressive in me, it's because it's starting to reflect Jesus in some way. So it all goes back up. To Jesus and any glory that I would receive for anything that I would do would go straight to Jesus and this is what he was talking about earlier as he would say little child Kevin little child to each of us those of us who are Christians any glory that is extended to us given to us goes right back up to him because there's this connectedness between us and Jesus as we trust in him and it's interesting, the author of the Gospel of John is John, okay? He speaks about this whole idea of new commandment and old commandments in another book. First John, in chapter 2, he writes this. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. Sounds very similar to what we're talking about. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Love your neighbor as yourself. At the same time, it is a new commandment that, I'm, that I am writing to you, which is true in him. 
It's a new commandment because it's true in Jesus. That is what makes it a new commandment. So there is a better promise behind this command that Jesus is giving that provides us the power, and we can say resurrection power, to obey the command. Not because we're earning something, we're saving ourselves by obeying the command. When we obey the command, we're actually reflecting a reality that, that has transpired in us, our connectedness to Jesus. So it's not so that we can then be, become connected to Jesus, it's that we are connected to Jesus, and that then causes us to love others in the way that Jesus has loved us. So this is all what's undergirding this new commandment, but we haven't even talked about the command to love one another. Notice as Jesus gives this, he doesn't give any qualifications whatsoever. No way that we can kind of sneak out the back door like, oh, I don't like this person's personality, or, or this person annoys me in some way, or, or we don't have similar interests. The command is to love one another. Love one another. doesn't matter who it is, how much you like or dislike somebody. The fact that it is hard or that it is sacrificial to love someone is what makes it distinctive. This is Jesus loving us. We have offended him. We have sinned against him. We have rebelled against him over and over and over. And he has loved us. The fact that it is hard and sacrificial is what marks it out as an otherworldly love like Jesus has displayed in washing the feet of his disciples and in him dying on a cross. Now, loving one another in the context of a local church, in the context of a family or relationships or in a work environment can take millions of forms. Uh, so we could spend tons of time talking about the various forms. Uh, we're not going to do that this morning, but one form that I was struck by this, this past week as I was just thinking through all of this is the form of initiatory love. So we oftentimes will love somebody by helping them uh, because they have a need, right? So we might see, see a need and then we go and we help them. Or uh, this is Minnesota, so it, it's like a grave sin to actually ask somebody for help. But, but when that happens, when that happens, we'll oftentimes help, whether it's because of good motivations or we're guilted to do it, right? Like, we'll oftentimes help somebody. But I was just thinking through this idea of initiatory love, like being in relationship with somebody to an extent where you know them, you know their situation, you can read their face in such a way that you can see something's wrong. And so you ask, what's going on? What, why are you experiencing this? What, what's behind the pain, the angst that you are feeling, and then pursuing them in ways that are meaningful 
to them, loving them in ways that are meaningful to them, knowing them in such a way, or asking questions in, in an initiatory way that allows you to know them to an extent that you can love them in ways that is meaningful to them. And I yearn for this to mark us as a church. For us as individuals and for us as a corporate church, that we would be marked by sacrificial, hard love of one another. Because when others would see that, that is what marks us as Jesus' people. It's an attractive love. It's also offensive at times, like we talked about last week. It's offensive because it's so good. It make, can make people uncomfortable, like, you don't need to love me that way. But in that offense, it's also attractive. It draws people in. So just a couple things about the love that we see with Jesus. His love is selfless. He's not serving just to look impressive. He is serving and loving so that others would be loved, so that they would be transformed. And, and I think about, like on a given Sunday morning, there's lots of service that happens here at Center Church. This doesn't happen if, if people don't serve, from setting up and tearing down, from teaching kids uh, about Jesus, from running sound and running PowerPoint slides. Uh, there's tons of things that are happening, greeting people as they walk in in the morning, uh, being intentional and going and talking to people in meaningful ways, seeing somebody standing by themselves and going to them and engaging them, asking somebody about how their week has been. There are so many ways that service happens week in and week out. But the intention in that the selfless intention in that is that it's not about us looking impressive. It's not about us earning something, like, like earning next week off, right? Like I can check out next week because I did it last week. Like that's not the intention at all. The hope is that we can display the love of Jesus, that we can embody what Jesus has done to us so that we can remind one another of this great love of Jesus, and in the midst of that, then encourage one another in that. And, and that's the other thing here. It's selfless and it's sturdiness. When we are loved, when we are loved, we will feel sturdiness. In order for us to go to others, we need to first feel loved. We have to feel that embrace from others. And so as we are loved, and as we love others, that then helps to fuel and motivate the going to others, the loving of others. Uh, otherwise, if we don't feel that sense of sturdiness, we're just going to be grasping, looking for love, so that, because we all need to feel that sturdiness. So ultimately, we find that in Jesus. But Jesus also causes this to happen through his church. We are intended to provide that embodiment of the gospel of Jesus' love for us to one another. And then, so that we might then also love others beyond one another here. Think of the world. Think non-Christian in our 
in our neighborhoods, in our work environments, in, in our hobbies, as we go work out, or whatever it might be. All right, so Jesus provides a better promise, which makes an old command new. And in the remaining verses, Peter is going to display for us how our blessing is found in Jesus. And that that is why we need him. Our blessing is found not in us pursuing blessing on our own, but it's found in and through Jesus, as we talked about before, because he has kept the law. We, we can't keep the law for ourselves. He does that for us. And so our blessing, our keeping of the commandment is rooted in him. So Jesus gives this new command to his disciples, and Peter just completely blows by it. He discards this new command because he's fixated on the fact that he cannot go where Jesus is going. So he asks Jesus, where are you going? And then later he says, why can I not go with you? And Jesus just doesn't give the answer that Peter is looking for at all. Jesus says in verse 36, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Did you hear it? Did you hear the promise? There's always a promise that undergirds what Jesus is doing and what he is saying. You cannot follow me now, but you will come afterward. There's a promise undergirding this. Peter didn't hear it. His response to Jesus was, why can I not follow you now? And then he goes to, I will lay down my life for you. Peter is such a good illustration of us trying to be Jesus, and, and oftentimes not even conscious of this re reality. I will lay down my life for you. No, you won't, Peter. No, you won't. You're going to deny Jesus three times, very quickly. And, and you think about Jesus, or Peter as he's going to deny Jesus. You, you think about the, the circumstance. He's saying, I will lay my life down for you, Jesus, which is what Jesus is actually going to do. But when he's just threatened with, oh, this man is with Jesus, he, he's not even faced with crucifixion himself, right? Like, with truly laying his life down, it's just, I think this dude is with Jesus. He's like, uh-uh, not me. It doesn't take much for him to deny Jesus. And this right here, what we see in Peter is why Jesus promises are better. So much better. How often have you made a promise to somebody and then failed to follow through? How often have you said, I'll, I'll pray for you, but then forgotten to do that? Not Jesus. Not Jesus. There's not a single promise that Jesus has made that is ever broken. He keeps his promises. He obeys commands perfectly. A promise made by God is the surest thing in the world. Peter is about to deny Jesus three times. He is going to break his promise 
to Jesus, of I will lay my life down for you. Jesus would say that. Right? Jesus says, that, that would be unthinkable. Peter, I won't, I won't do that. I'm not going to turn my back on you, Jesus. This is the former covenant. This is the old covenant. This is the old command. These are the old promises that Peter is making for us. This is how we love one another in our own strength. Not well. Not well at all. This is why we need a better promise. This is why we need Jesus. And we look at this interaction and we could see maybe how Jesus could address Peter with a condescending little child. For his self-awareness is immature and, and infantile. He thinks he is much more capable than he is. But Jesus is calling Peter and his other disciples little child, not in a condescending way, but in a way of affection. Because he really views them as his little children. Because he loves them. Because he serves them. Because he cares for them. And in this, he is demonstrating the oneness between those who follow him, the same oneness that we see between God the Father and Jesus himself. So three points of gospel application this morning. First of all, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. It's a simple song that many of us maybe have sung many times through our childhood, but the depths of that statement, Jesus loves you, are immeasurable. The promise that is contained in that statement should be an anchor in your life. Jesus loves you. It's a massive promise. Believe this reality, that Jesus loves you. Make yourself dependent on it. You are, whether you realize it or not. But be dependent on this reality that Jesus loves you. You and I can do nothing on our own. We need Jesus. Rest on his promises. Secondly, there's this strong imperative in these verses to love one another. To love one another. And so for those of us who trust in Jesus, there is this call to love one another. And, and part of what I want to do this morning is just create space. Create space for God's Spirit to work in our hearts. Not in a shameful way, but to really poke us in a way to push against selfishness, to push against this, these tendencies in us to make life about us. The call for us to love one another is that we would be proactive, that we would be intentional, that we would be surprising and sacrificial in our love for others, that we wouldn't make it about our comfort and our pleasure. And it's not as though we have to say yes to everything. That's not what I'm saying. But is the rhythm of our lives one in which where we are loving others in sacrificial, surprising ways? Would others say that about us? Do others experience this foot-washing type of love? Not literally, but the service 
embodied in the washing of feet? Do people experience that in and through our lives? Is your life marked by loving others? And if it's not, if it's not, the answer is not to just white-knuckle it and say, okay, I've got to love people better, but to step back say, how am I not viewing the gospel correctly? How am I not understanding Jesus' love for me? Because the reality is, our love for others is a good way to diagnose our understanding of God's love for us. So if our love for others is shallow and immature, then I'm pretty sure that our understanding of God's love for us is shallow and immature because our love for others will never exceed our understanding of God's love for us. And lastly then, as Jesus' glory is wrapped up in his nearness and submission to his Father, our glory, our joy, our satisfaction is wrapped up in our nearness and our submission to Jesus. One thing that we oftentimes will do is that we will seek to find identity in things outside of Jesus. And this is a dangerous, dangerous game to play because what we end up doing when we place our identity in how good we are at our job or how much we get paid in our job or how good we keep the house clean or how good our kids obey us or whatever it might be and how our body looks and how high, we might climb some ladder, whatever ladder that might be for you, what we will end up doing is that we will vacillate between pride on the days we do it really good and despair on the days when we are horrible and we fail. And that is not where Jesus intends for us to be. He intends that our identity would be in him. Our ability to obey his commands are not resting merely on our shoulders. They're resting in our trust in him. He is the one who keeps the commands. We live out of his command keeping. We live out of his love for us. So find your identity in Jesus. Let him be the one who speaks your value over your life. It's not this or that activity not this or that achievement or accomplishment. It is Jesus. So let him be the barometer of your life. Let's pray.